Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right, it has been a couple of weeks since uh, I last did a Q&A. I apologize for that. Uh, uh, it's been a crazy couple of weeks for everybody, I suspect, uh, with everything going on with uh, the coronavirus uh, and the global pandemic that it has created. Uh, so we got uh, derailed a little bit. Xander actually had to stay home for a couple of weeks. Uh, so, um, but uh, he's back, he's well, he's fine. You don't need to worry about him. Um, everybody, uh, everybody at Book of Mormon Central is doing well so far. Uh, we're practicing social distancing and doing our part here. Uh, and we hope you're staying safe as well. Um, but, uh, and, you know, we hope that, uh, with no church and things like that, that you're finding what we're doing here at Book of Mormon Central, uh, as helpful as it can be, uh, to, uh, to help, uh, enhance your, your home scripture and gospel study. Uh, with that said, uh, this week uh, I am doing a special Q&A, uh, not directly related to the Come Follow Me curriculum this time. We are going to do a Q&A on the restoration uh, because uh, we're about to celebrate the restoration tomorrow in general as part of General Conference weekend. Uh, so I wanted to uh, give, uh, give the people in our Facebook group a chance to ask questions about... Um, about the first vision in particular, but some other events related to the restoration as well. And I got some great questions here and uh, hopefully great answers. Uh, but uh, I guess you can be the judge of that. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started. Before we do though, my usual disclaimer, the answers given in this video do not represent the official opinion of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Book of Mormon Central, or the Come Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook, gro uh, yeah, Facebook group, excuse me. And of course, uh, since they're somewhat off the cuff, they don't really represent my official views either. As always, I, review, I, res, uh, I reserve the right to change my mind. Um, with that having been said though, uh, let's go ahead and dive into some of these questions. Uh, I'm going to, uh, I, I said I would prioritize questions on the first vision, and so I'm going to start with all the questions I received uh, specifically on the first vision, and uh, I'm gonna give myself a little more time to explore some of those. Uh, and then uh, there's a couple of questions related to uh, some other restoration events, uh, Moroni and, and the Melchizedek Priesthood, that, uh, that uh, hopefully we'll have time to get to here. Uh, but uh, as usual, I'm, I'm not going to answer every question. Um, there are a couple that I didn't have time to, to get any uh, research done on uh, this week, and so unfortunately I, I was not able to, to address those. Um, first question. Uh, this is from Cindy Rhodes. She said, what do you think about the idea being promoted that March 26, 1820 was the exact date of the first vision? Uh, we know it doesn't matter about the truthfulness of the event, but I find the argument of, by John Lefgren and John Pratt to be compelling. Uh, so an interesting question. Uh, I have watched the video by, uh, promoted by John Pratt and John Lefgren and, uh, and have some thoughts on it. Uh, just speaking of both of those two in general, um, I'm familiar with some of the other work they've done and I'm actually, uh, that familiarity with their work makes me suspicious from the start, to be honest. Uh, they both have done a lot on chronology related to biblical and Book of Mormon events and I have disagreed pretty strongly actually with, uh, with some of the conclusions they've reached. We won't go into all of that, and that of course doesn't mean they're wrong on this, uh, but that, just understand, I came into it with a little bit of a prejudice here uh, because I have not agreed with their chronological work in the past, and this is, uh, this is using some of the similar, uh, uh, you know, this is obviously related to chronology and things like that. Um, that being said, uh, there are kind of two halves to this argument from, from Pratt and Lefgren. Uh, there's the Book of Enoch stuff coming from John Pratt, and then there's uh, some other stuff that comes from John Lefgren that I'll get to in a minute. On the Book of Enoch stuff, I'm very skeptical. Uh, 
I don't know a ton about it. I've never been a scholar of, uh, of the Enoch literature and things like that. Um, but based on what's described in the video on the calendar in the Book of Enoch, it sounds like the same calendar system that was used in the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I have studied. Um, and I'm not sure what his sources are or what the Book of Enoch actually says. Um, he quotes part of it that he interprets as evidence that there's some intercalation going on every five years or something like that. Um, but uh, I don't know about that. The, uh, the Qumran, the Dead, the Dead Sea Scrolls community, they used the 364-day calendar, and they did not intercalate it with, uh, with the seasons at all. And uh, it just went on and, and on and on without any correction, uh, which means some of his calculations, if he's assuming intercalation, may not be right. Uh, so that's kind of a first problem. But like I said, I haven't looked directly at the Book of Enoch on this question. Um, I'm also just skeptical of how he's extrapolating from the, the weeks model to, oh, this must be uh, two 364-day years, da-da-da-da-da-da, from, from then on. Um, and then his claims that it lines up perfectly with, uh, with the dates for all these other key events in biblical history and world history and things like that. I'm just very, very skeptical of all of that. And part of that is because for some of these biblical events, things like the Exodus, for instance, uh, there are some very serious debates among biblical scholars as to when those things actually happened. And the different opinions range from, you know, there are centuries of difference. Uh, Some scholars think the Exodus happened in the 15th century BC. Others put it in the 13th century BC, and then there's some who put it even later, like 11th century. Those are the two main, is the 15th and 13th century. That's a two-century difference uh, about, and I don't know how you can be so sure that uh, his calculations are going to line up exactly with when it really happened, right? So I'm really skeptical of pretty much everything going on with the Book of Enoch uh, in that video. The stuff John Lefkren is doing, I find a lot more interesting Uh, and uh, actually a lot more helpful in trying to uh, answer the kind of question they're trying to answer about when Joseph Smith may have uh, gone into the grove and and, uh, had his first vision. Um, it's, uh, It's very interesting data and it's pretty persuasive, though I'm, we'll get to in a minute why I'm not 100% uh, convinced. In fact, uh, um, actually, we'll get to that right now. <laughs> so the one thing that my hang-up would be with with the what John Lefgren and some of the other people that they have on the video kind of to, uh, to supplement what he's doing, it's all very interesting and, and pretty persuasive. My hang-up would be I don't think we should take the reference to early spring too rigidly. Um, and, uh, and I'll explain why that is. It's obvious for starters that Joseph does not remember the exact date because otherwise he probably would have told us what day this happened. We know he remembers the exact date for some other events and he tells us when he does or even when he has an approximate date. When, when Martin Harris came to, um, to scribe for uh, the last 116 pages, uh, Joseph Smith remembered that he came on about April 12th, right? And uh, we don't know if that's, you know, that's the only, that's, that's the date he gives us is April 12th, but he says about. But clearly his, his recollection on the date, April 12th, is confident enough that he's willing to give that date, even though he's maybe not sure it might have been a day before, a day earlier, a couple days off, but he knows it's around that time, and that's pretty, uh, that's pretty specific. We don't have anything like that for the first vision. He says, early spring and leaves it pretty generic. So clearly Joseph Smith himself does not remember when it happened. So I don't think um, he's remembering specifically in his mind, well, it was definitely before April 15th, which is what the, what they give as the cutoff for early spring in their video. Um, I don't think he necessarily is remembering that. Uh, rather, I think he's remembering the way most of us typically remember when we're trying to think of something from a long time ago and we don't remember exactly when it happened. Um, 
we usually base our recollection and calibration of that timing on circumstantial uh, details that we can remember. Things like uh, if you're trying to remember something that happened, uh, um, you're trying to remember something that happened several years ago and you remember there were Christmas decorations everywhere. So you can remember it was Christmas time when it happened. Um, You're going to, uh, or maybe you remember that uh, you and your family went to the pool around the time that this thing you're trying to remember happened. So you remember it was summertime when it happened, things like that. These kinds of circumstantial details are uh, often how we remember uh, about the time of year or season something happened when we can't remember the exact date on the calendar. And I suspect Joseph Smith is doing the same thing. So uh, there are two factors that I think could have been uh, involved. There's the seasonal things that he would remember from the farm work he's doing. That stuff is going to move along. You know, they're going to do specific things around specific seasons and specific times of year. And so I imagine when Joseph Smith is trying to remember when the vision happened, one of the first things he's doing is saying, well, what was I doing? Uh, What kind of farm work were we working on? Things like that. Um, And then another factor is going to be probably the weather, the same thing we would do. If we remember it being cold and chilly and and snowy, we're probably going to assume several years later, trying to remember, it must have been in the springtime, or excuse me, it must have been in the wintertime, even though it could potentially be uh, early spring, technically. We just had snow on actually March 26th here in Utah. Uh, And uh, if I tried to remember something that happened that day, 20 years from now, I might think it was something that happened in the wintertime because I remember, oh yeah, it was snowing. Um, similarly, uh, if, it, if we get early snow in the fall, we might do the same thing, but we'll also just remember things like, oh, uh, I remember all the leaves were changing, so it must have been in the fall, the weather was chillier, or whatever. So weather patterns, seasonal behavior, things like that are what's going into what, the way we're thinking. And this is why I actually find John Lefkren's data interesting, but for kind of a different reason. Uh, What he's finding with those weather reports is that the weather wasn't very spring-like in upstate New York in the early spring that year. And that's probably actually pretty consistently true pretty often in western New York. It's a more northern latitude. It's, It's chilly and wintry and cold through early spring quite often. And uh, there's actually another researcher um, who has looked at this data as well, uh, a a historian named D. Michael Quinn. And he he doesn't cut off at at April 15th. He looks at the weather reports all through the spring and found that uh, the overall pattern reveals that it was consistently cold, chilly, and even wintry well into May. Uh, There was uh, snow and frost occurring uh, even in, on May 24th, there was, uh, there was a cold frost that, uh, that froze over overnight. Um, and so there are, there are occasional warmer spring-like days in between all of that. And certainly as you get into the later part of April and into May, the warmer days are a little more frequent and uh, those really colder, wintry-like days are less often. But the point is, um, if, if Joseph Smith is trying to remember this 18 years later, uh, in 1838, um, when he's actually living in Missouri, where the weather's generally warmer and his perception of early spring has probably shifted uh, in particular, um, and he, if he's thinking about what the weather was like, uh, I would not rule out the possibility, uh, at least, that, uh, that the experience actually happened a little later into spring than we're accustomed to thinking, because he might have remembered March and most of April as actually being kind of wintry. And when he's trying to remember this stuff years later, he's like, oh, that was still winter. Oh yeah, the weather warmed up around May. He's not remembering specifically May, but maybe the vision happens in in May, for instance. And it feels like, that seems like it was early spring to him, uh, trying to think back on it several years later. Um, So, I am, uh, I guess to, to, to kind of sum up all of that, the, the point I'm trying to make with all of that is I'm not completely sold on the March 26th date. Uh, I feel like uh, that early in the season, that early in spring that year 
is maybe not likely given how chilly and wet and cold it often was, um, which would make his memory kind of think more winter rather than spring, I think. But there is the other factor of, well, what kinds of things was was Joseph Smith doing? And they talk about some of this in the video with the... Um, with the tapping of the trees to get syrup and, and, well, to get sap that they turn into syrup and things like that. And if Joseph's remembering that those kind of details, that could help him calibrate correctly and think, oh yeah, that we tapped the trees for sap in early spring. That's what I was doing when the vision happened. So it was early spring. Maybe that's his thought process. He's not explicit about that. And even the hatchet in the stump is not uh, a clincher for that because there are a lot of things you do throughout the year in uh, on a farm that would require like the chopping of wood. So um, it could be connected to tapping trees for sap. It could be connected to any other number of other uh, different seasonal activities that uh, a farmer in 19th century New York would have been doing. Um, so again, just to kind of sum up, I wouldn't dis, I'm not trying to dismiss the possibility of March 6th. It's actually, I thought the, the presentation on, on the John Lefgren side of things with the data that he brought into it was actually pretty interesting. I'm open to it. It's, it's, uh, it's somewhat compelling to me. I'm not willing to completely rule out the possibility though, that it was actually maybe just a little later into the spring that they cut off the, their line there at April 15th, a little too early and ruled out a whole bunch of other possible days. It could have been in the latter part of April, even into May. I'm even willing to consider into June, uh, to be honest. Technically, spring doesn't end till June 20th or 21st. So um, so those are just my thoughts. I'm open to the possibility, but I, I also recommend remaining open to other possibilities as well. Um, I'm kind of, I lean a little more towards it might have been later in the spring than we tend to think. Um, okay, Joseph uh, Kosgriff asked, why did Joseph particularly focus on the Baptist, Presbyterian, and Methodist divisions in his 1838 account? Uh, that's a good question. There were actually a lot of other faiths in the area. Um, there were Quakers, there were, um, there were uh, Universalists and things like that. Uh, I can't think of, uh, I know there's a whole bunch. I actually just did some reading about them. But um, if you want to actually learn about the broad range of religious uh, backgrounds that were in Palmyra and then in broader and western New York at the time. Uh, Milton V. Backman, in his book, Joseph Smith's First Vision, uh, I recommend the second edition, 1980, uh, published in 1980, but uh, the first edition published in 1971 will cover a lot of this as well. Um, he goes through in detail the different religions, when they arrived in Palmyra, how many people were there at about the time Joseph Smith was living in Palmyra, things like that, and the different things those religions believed. And he goes in detail on that. He goes in detail on the kinds of things being debated religiously uh, in Joseph Smith's uh, time and place. And, uh, and he gives you a lot of background on that kind of thing. But as far as why Joseph Smith is only talking about or focusing on Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, the answer is uh, because those are the biggest uh, religious uh, denominations in his day and time and place. And uh, they are, we can document uh, also in Milton Backman's book, they are the ones who are most active in the uh, revivalism that's going on in the uh, early 19th century, in the 18-teens and 1820s and 1830s. And they're the ones who are gaining, reaping the most converts at the time. And uh, we have reports from Western New York uh, from 1819 and 1820 that show that thousands of people are joining those ch those churches specifically. Some reports that show up right in the Palmyra newspaper in 1820. So this is stuff, even though it's happening more broadly across Western New York, this is stuff Joseph Smith could have been aware of. And uh, there are reports about Presbyterian churches with like 12,000 converts. Don't quote me on this exactly. I'm, I didn't read the newspaper reports just now. So, uh, but there, there, are, there are thousands and tens of thousands of converts to Presbyterians or Methodists or, or whatever. And uh, those are, those are going to be the ones that are going to stand out to someone like Joseph Smith at the time. They're the biggest. They're having the most success. They're the most active at the time. Uh, and so I think that's kind of the, the most obvious reason as to why Joseph Smith would kind of zero in on 
uh, Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist. And we actually know Joseph mentions he has, personally, he has Methodist leanings. He favors the Methodist church himself before he goes in to pray. In fact, one account, uh, a secondhand account from Alexander Nybauer uh, in 1844 portrays Joseph as actually specifically asking if the Methodist church is true. So that's, you know, Joseph favors the Methodist church personally. His mom and part of his family have joined the Presbyterian church. So there's personal connections for those two churches. Um, And then the Baptist is just kind of the next, the other, the third big, big church at the time. So anyway, uh, great question. Uh, All right, this is from uh, Spencer Krause. So this is something I have always been a little curious about and have some ideas, but was wondering what you would have to say on it. Why do you think the first account Joseph gave of the first vision was in 1832? What were some of the circumstances that led to him sharing that in his journal and to his scribe? Do you think he told other early saints before 1832 that just weren't written down by Joseph or anyone else because of the nature of the experience? Uh, okay, good question. Why 1832? And I think kind of part of the question is why not earlier, right? Uh, we've got Spencer here is even asking if maybe he shared it with, with anyone earlier, and we'll get to that in just a second. Um, the first thing I do want to stress, though, is th- this is going to seem like a minor technicality, but it's important uh, when we're doing history to make these kinds of distinctions. Uh, and so I just want to stress first that the 1832 account is the earliest account we have. Whether that's the earliest account he wrote, we can never be 100% certain of because our historical record is incomplete. Um, it probably is the first one he wrote, given how rough it is um, and some other factors that I'll actually probably get into in a minute. It's unlikely, I think, that he wrote, he tried to write this, uh, this experience down any sooner. Um, but it's just an important distinction. It's hypothetically always possible that someday we discover another earlier account and find out that actually he did try to write it down or he did talk about it and someone else wrote it down um, in, you know, 1827 or 1823 or something like that. That would be uh, absolute gold in terms of Mormon history to get accounts that early from uh, on the first vision, and I doubt it'll happen. But like I said, it's hypothetically possible. Um, And I I think one thing we don't always appreciate is how fortunate we are to have the records we have from the 1830s and 40s in Mormon history, or excuse me, in Latter-day Saint history, uh, given just the circumstances of the saints always moving and relocating, often under duress and and threat of violence and actual violence and things like that, which included the burning of homes and destroying of records and destroying of printing presses and things like that. And, you know, there's the miraculous story about how the Book of Commandments was saved and things like that. So it's, and the long trek west, ultimately, the the big move uh, from from Illinois across the, the, the plains and over the mountains and into Utah, given all of that, it's amazing we didn't lose everything and just have no documentation for what happened, uh, and, you know, from, from this early period. So we're really fortunate to have what we have in this regard. Um, as to why it maybe didn't get written down any earlier, though, I think a lot of people, uh, people tend to wonder this, and uh, I think for us today it kind of, it's because it seems a little natural to us to think that if he had this vision, he would have written it down sooner, almost immediately even. Um, Part of that is because uh, we have church leaders who have emphasized to us as we've grown up in the church uh, the importance of keeping a journal, right? The importance of writing your your spiritual experiences down, the importance of writing your testimony down. Those kinds of things have been emphasized to us over and over and over again. I know as I was growing up in the church, I had young men's and young women's leaders who were buying us journals and and giving them to us during youth conference or whatever and and things like that. And so, you know, they were uh, really trying to emphasize that. And despite their greatest efforts, I'm not a very good journal keeper, <laughs> and so uh, maybe someday people will wonder why some of my experiences weren't written down sooner. But in any case, um, that's a that's a big part of why we expect Joseph Smith to write down his journal. You know, to, to to yeah, write down in his journal. I saw God and Jesus Christ today on March twenty sixth or whatever day it actually was, eighteen twenty. 
Um, I think another part of it is just the kind of uh, the reading and writing resources that are so easily available to us. Uh, I can go to the store right now. It's just a few blocks from our office, and I can buy a notebook and uh, you know a seventy-page notebook um, and ten pens and spend less than four dollars. And uh, most people can afford to do that. Um, if I want to get like an actual nice journal or whatever, it's going to cost me more. But on the cheap, I can just do that. Paper and pen are so accessible. I grew up in a house where I could just open a drawer, grab a pen, a piece of paper, and write down whatever I wanted. Um, and I suspect, again, this is an experience a lot of people can relate to. Um, and another part of it is just the literacy of our society today. Um, I started learning, I, you know, going to American public schools, I started learning how to read and write at five. Um, by the time I was a teenager, I had written and I had, I had I'd written several papers for school. I had read books that were hundreds of pages long um, and written book reports about those books. And, and uh, so I had, I wasn't a genius by any stretch, but you know, your common American teenager today has pretty good literacy um, has, and has experience and has op- had opportunities to do a lot of writing. Um, and uh, that doesn't mean we're all great writers or anything by the time we graduate high school. Um, but we, we grow up in a society where the average person can write f- pretty okay, pretty decently. And uh, it would not be hard for most of us if we had to, to maybe write down some of our personal experiences we feel comfortable with that and we have direct access to the resources, they're uh, really easy to get, things like that. And then like I said, the church has been emphasizing to us as we've grown up, for those at least who have grown up in the church, that they should have, you know, you should be writing these kinds of things down. Joseph Smith doesn't grow up in an environment like this at all. Nothing, that that, that doesn't, you know, nothing about his experience is relatable to any of what I just said. Uh, Joseph Smith grew up in a rural area in 18... in the early 1800s, right? He's on a farm. Uh, He didn't have anyone teaching him to write down his personal experiences. The Smith family culture was not to write down your your, uh, spiritual experiences. We know this because we know, uh, because the, we, well, for one thing, we just don't have anything like that written from the Smith family very early. We, the earliest written document we have from the whole Smith family is a letter uh, from like 1829 to, to Joseph Smith Sr.'s brother, Jesse. Um, or at least, actually, I think I might have gotten that backwards. It's a letter from Joseph Smith's uncle, uh, J- Joseph Smith Sr.'s brother, Jesse. Um, but in any case, uh, we do not have a lot of written material from them. We know they're having these spiritual, even visionary experiences. Lucy Mack Smith, in her history, written in 1844 and 1845, talks about dreams that her husband has in the 18-teens. And, uh, and, and some of her own spiritual experiences that happened even earlier. We don't have any written evidence for those before Lucy Maximus writes them down in 1844. So this is not a family culture where you have spiritual experiences and then write them down really quickly. Um, he was not being encouraged to keep a journal. Um, odds are they could not afford the paper for their kids to be keeping a journal. Uh, it's a really, you know... It's not like our world today, like I was just talking about. Paper and ink are a lot more expensive. It would be hard for a poor far- farming family to afford. Uh, they probably did have some paper and pen uh, ex- you know, access to, to those kinds of resources, at least at certain times, uh, maybe not regularly on hand. I don't know. I haven't done a lot of research on that specifically. But certainly for the purpose of being able to write letters, uh, for the purpose of being able to... Um, draft legal contracts and documents that they might uh, negotiate with some of their neighbors and things like that. Uh, They're going to have paper and pen for those kinds of things, but they are not going to have an abundance of of ink and paper so that their kids can just be keeping journals all the time. Um, That's just not the kind of place they're growing up in. And Joseph Smith's educational background is not the kind where, uh, where he's being, where a lot of writing is being demanded of him, right? And it, you know, we know from his own accounts that he only kind of had a rudimentary education, um, in, and that really shows through in the documents, the earliest documents we have from him, such as the 1832 account. Uh, it's really rough and uh, uh, 
you know, his, his lack of education really shows through, actually, in the account. Um, so I don't think he was an especially confident writer, and I don't think he was inclined to write down his personal experiences, and uh, he probably, if, if he wanted to try, he probably wasn't comfortable. I think he's uncomfortable doing it in 1832, to be honest. Uh, we have a letter from, uh, from Joseph Smith, I believe it's to W.W. Phelps, uh, from like November 1832, or right about the same time he's writing this account. And he's talking about his frustration with the narrow prison of paper, pen, and ink. And uh, it's, it's frustrating for him to try and write down his experiences. And, you know, we know as an adult, he tended to prefer to work through a scribe. So there's a lot of reasons why I don't think he would have tried to write it down much sooner than he did. Uh, there's a lot of reasons why he wouldn't have written it down right at that particular moment when it happened. Um, it's just not the kind of uh, family culture, social culture that he grew up in. And uh, he probably lacked the skills and confidence and, and even the resources, the paper and the ink, to even do it. Um, as to why he did finally do it in 1832, we know that in 1830 there's a revelation that says, start a history. And uh, that, that right there is telling because God has to tell Joseph Smith, the things that are happening are important. You need to keep a record of this. Uh, he didn't have, it wasn't intuitive to him to be keeping a record. And he appoints John Whitmer as the church historian, and John Whitmer starts from the day he's appointed and starts keeping a record. But he doesn't go back through the founding events and retell those stories. So I think Joseph's a little frustrated with that, and uh, that's part of what motivates him to start telling these founding stories. Um, and it takes him a while uh, before he's finally able to do it because he's really busy. And the reason it happens in 1832 is he finally has some time. And uh, this, the background on this is actually talked about in a Pearl of Great Price Central um, article. It's a Joseph Smith Insight number two, and it's specifically on the 1832 account, just providing background and context for uh, when and why it was written. Um, and uh, in there, and, and it's drawing from a paper by Matthew C. Godfrey, and you can find that in the footnotes there. Uh, but in there, it talks about how Joseph Smith was traveling with some others to Missouri, and Newell K. Whitney, who was with him, broke his leg on the way. And so they had to stop uh, in Greenville, Indiana, and the rest of the group goes on, but Joseph Smith stays with, uh, with Newell K. Whitney. And while he's there, he has time to think about and ponder on his experiences. And he's writing some letters at the time. And we have some of those letters. And the themes and things that show up in those letters are reminiscent to what's in the 1832 account. So uh, Matt Godfrey has argued, and we talk about this in the, in the Pearl of Great Price uh, Central Insight, uh, the Joseph Smith History Insight, I should say. Um, he thinks that it's at this time that Joseph finally has time to stop and ponder and think about his experience and think about how he wants to tell his story. And uh, that gives him the opportunity to do that. And so then when he's fine, uh, a little while later, he's able to sit down with a scribe and he starts telling his story. As the scribe's writing, Joseph decides, no, I've got to try and tell this myself, takes over with the pen and writes. But, uh, but yeah, I think that has a lot to do with why the timing is, is just, he's too busy before that, uh, after he started the church. Um, as to whether he did actually tell anyone verbally, uh, you know, he, if he was at least audibly telling about this experience uh, to other people before 1832, uh, I think he was. Uh, we know he, I, I don't think he was telling a lot of people. It wasn't being widely circulated, uh, at least not a lot of the details about it. Um, but we know he told a Methodist minister and uh, probably a few others, uh, friends, kids his age, um, I forget uh, who it is. There's two people it could be. I won't try to, but, but one of Joseph's contemporaries later remembered uh, he would go to a Methodist debate club and he would, you know, argue with, with kids about various theological topics. And the last time he went, he made some pronouncement about how all of religion is corrupt. And it sounds like the conclusion that, you know, this is presented as the conclusion that he's come to, uh, through his argument and debate process, but it, it sounds a lot like what he's told in the first vision. And 
so it's maybe evidence that if not the vision itself, he's telling people the conclusion that he re- that, that that you know the answer he was given in the vision uh, to his friends at, at this debate club, and they're probably ridiculing him a little bit for that, um, and that's contributing to his sense of persecution later. Uh, but there's some other circumstantial evidence that uh, that others were told at least a little bit about it. Uh, one thing um, that uh, Garrett Dirkmott just recently pointed out at the uh, recent Church History Symposium, and I believe he'll be publishing on this, uh, but Jonathan Hadley, um, who was a newspaper editor and uh, had was approached by Joseph Smith and Martin Harris about p- printing the Book of Mormon. And he rejected them, but he later printed, uh, in 1829, uh, he printed an article talking about the conversation he had with Joseph and Martin. And in it, he says that Joseph Smith claimed to have been visited by the spirit of the Almighty. And Garrett Dirkmott went through and, and explained, we've usually assumed that's the angel Moroni, but in 19th century usage, spirit of the Almighty is not a phrase that's used to refer to angels. It's a use, it's a phrase, oh, excuse me. It is a phrase that is used specifically to refer to God himself. And so it's possible that Joseph Smith, maybe if he didn't tell him about the full first vision experience, indicated to Jonathan Hadley, at least, that he had seen God. Um, We also have, there are newspaper reports in 1830 about uh, missionaries like Oliver Cowdery and um, the the companions who went with him. I can't remember uh, who all went with him off the top of my head, but they go on their mission out westward in 1830 and we start getting newspaper reports from people who hear them preach saying that they're going around telling people that Joseph Smith has seen God. Uh, We don't know the details of that. We don't know if there's a full first vision story being presented to them, or if they just, evidently they knew something about Joseph Smith having seen God um, and uh, are telling other people about it. Um, So again, circumstantial evidence, but stuff that suggests that Joseph was at least talking about aspects of his first vision. Uh, to people uh, before 1832. Um, All right, next question is from uh, Chris Reeve. Um, And Chris asked a lot of questions uh, because I'm organizing these based on different restoration events. I'm going to break those questions up a little bit. uh, And I don't think I'm going to get to all of them. Sorry, Chris. But this is Chris's question on the first vision. How does Joseph's vision compare with the several dozen or so other documented religious visions at the time? Uh, Once again, on Pearl of Great Price Central, we actually have an article that talks about it. It's Joseph Smith History Insight number 19, uh, The Visionary World of Joseph Smith is the title. Um, And that title's pretty much ripped directly off from Richard Bushman, who did an article in BYU Studies called The Visionary, ah, excuse me, The Visionary World of Joseph Smith. Um, You can access the Bushman article online uh, at BYU Studies. You can access the Pearl of Great Price Central article at Pearl of Great Price Central. Um, But uh, as it talks about in there, oh, and this insight also draws on the work of Christopher Jones in a paper called The Power and Form of Godliness, Methodist Conversion Narratives, and Joseph Smith's First Vision, um, published in the Journal of Mormon History. Uh, I don't know if that one's uh, accessible online anywhere. Um, I have a copy of it, though, and I have, I have looked at it. Uh, but uh, according to Bushman, uh, he surveyed several of these accounts, and uh, he found that uh, one thing that made Joseph Smith unique is the reference to the father and the son. Um, He said that, he didn't say that this is an exclusive thing to Joseph Smith's first vision, but reference to both father and son is less common. It's not, uh, it's it's more typical for a person to see just Jesus Christ. Um, And Christopher Jones actually talked about uh, one difference he saw in his studies was that uh, these other experiences are typically less explicit. Um, They're more uh, visionary in their language Uh, They're often dreams. Uh, They often say things like, by faith I saw, or things like that. Whereas Joseph Smith was a lot more emphatic in his accounts um, that something actually happened. It wasn't a dream. It wasn't like, 
a visionary, I mean, it was a vision, but it wasn't like this kind of visionary trance sort of thing. Um, and he even makes it sound like a, a visitation. He says, I, you know, I, I in reality saw a vision and they did re- in reality speak to me. And, and uh, that's something that Chris Jones talks about um, in that paper, uh, among other things. Uh, and uh, those are just two examples that, that Bushman and Jones have pointed out. I have not personally gone through a lot of those accounts myself. Uh, I've read those papers and I thought uh, they were pretty interesting though. So you can read more about that from either Bushman or Jones or from the Pearl of Great Price Insight. Uh, it talks about some of the other things that set Joseph Smith's vision apart. Um, so uh, that is uh, everything I'm going to do on the first vision right now. Uh, we're going to jump over to Moroni's visits. Uh, we've got a question again from Chris Reeve. Um, can you discuss the use of Nephi versus Moroni in some of the written accounts? As I recall, some accounts refer to Nephi at some point. Uh, so what Chris is talking about is there are some 19th century sources that uh, name the angel that visited Joseph Smith as Nephi rather than Moroni. Um, what seems to have happened is there was actually a clerical error, or uh, we would call it a typo today, but uh, it was in a handwritten document that then got typeset, and so it's not really um, a typo like while I'm typing. Um, it was, it, but but it's been identified usually as a clerical error. Um, we have sources from the early 1830s identifying. Uh, the angel is Moroni. Even anti-Mormon sources are referring to the angel as Moroni. Uh, we have direct sources from Joseph Smith referring to Moroni as the angel in 1838 and 1842. Um, Oliver Cowdery in 1835, things like that. Um, in a draft copy of Joseph Smith's 1838 history, though, uh, in the handwriting of James Mulholland, uh, the angel's name gets written as Nephi. And then that, uh, that then gets typeset and printed in the Times and Seasons in 1842. And then there are other sources that are derivative of and dependent on the, the Times and Seasons account, uh, the, the, the Times and Seasons publication, that repeat this information, that repeat this mistake. Uh, but it appears to just be a clerical error. Um, because, like I said, before and after this happens, Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery and even anti-Mormons, they're all calling the angel Moroni. Nobody, uh, nobody seems to have thought it was Nephi unless they got it from this one, uh, this one source with this one error. So um, there's more information available from that. Actually, uh, what I found most useful was Fair Mormon. Uh, the Fair Mormon Answers uh, wiki has an article, Nephi or Moroni, and there's actually a really good timeline on that uh, that shows all the sources with Moroni and all the sources with Nephi and helps you see how they really are traced back to that one source. Uh, so I hope, that, uh, I hope that's helpful and answers your question. Um, there were some other questions about Moroni, but I'm going to move on for the sake of time. Uh, Book of Mormon translation question, uh, and actually specifically on the lost 116 pages by McKay Heasley. Um, I would like to know how the lost 116 pages, the Book of Lehi, fits into the broader structure of the Book of Mormon. Supposedly, Mormon abridged the Book of Lehi as part of the large plates, but he makes no mention of it in the words of Mormon, uh, only that he abridged down to the time of King Benjamin. If it was part of the large plates, then why do you think he didn't mention it? How, uh, how certain are we that it was part of the large plates? Is it possible that it was uh, part of the large plates but didn't receive an abridgment, but it, that it was put into the gold plates without any commentary from Mormon? Uh, okay, so um, we're certain that the book of Lehi is in, or at least the record of Lehi is in the large plates because in 1 Nephi 19.1, He says, uh, specifically, upon the plates which I made, and these are the large plates, he just made the large plates here, and he says, upon the plates which I made, I did engrave in the record of my father, and also our journeyings in the wilderness and the prophecies of my father. So Nephi directly copies his father's record, which I assume was kept on a more perishable uh, medium, onto the plates that he makes. 
Um, so the, the book of Lehi is on those plates. So Mormon, uh, in words of Mormon, says he abridged from the plates of Nephi down to the reign of King Benjamin. And I think when he says that, he's telling us that, you know, he's expecting us to just naturally understand. He's starting from the beginning with Lehi in his abridgment and went down to the time of Benjamin. Um, and you got to remember, uh, ben, or not Benjamin, Mormon expects us to actually have this, right? He's talking about something he thinks we have. Uh, so he probably didn't feel like he needed to explain very much about what was on there because he thought we would have read it and we would have it and we could look and we could see. Um, unfortunately, we don't have it. And uh, in words of Mormon, he's primarily focused on explaining what the small plates are and why he included those. Because this is his kind of his introduction. It comes at the end because of an eight, we actually I should have put this in my notes so I could have given you the exact reference, but we have a no why at Book of Mormon Central that talks about why the words of Mormon come at the end of um, of the small plates. It's an ancient practice uh, called subscriptio where you put introductory information at the end instead of the beginning. But uh, it comes at the end, but he's kind of, a, he's introducing and explaining to us what the small plates record is. He's not that interested in telling us about his abridgment of the large plates here. Um, and uh, like I said, he expects us to actually have it and to know what's there. So I think that's kind of just all that's going on there. Um, if you really are interested in better understanding the lost pages and uh, all the complex stuff that's, that's involved there. There's a relatively new book. It just came out the end of last year uh, by Don Bradley called The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories. That, this is probably the most extensive work that's ever been done on, uh, on The Lost 116 Pages and its likely contents. And, and Bradley spends uh, a good portion of that book uh, trying to tease out what was in those lost pages. So you might want to check that out. Uh, okay, um, we're going to go to priesthood restoration now. I'm going to confess right now, this is not a strong uh, point for me. I do not know a lot about uh, the priesthood restoration. I have not done extensive reading. But uh, Chris Reeve asked, Melchizedek priesthood restoration, what documented evidence do we have apart from uh, DNC 27, that the Melchizedek priesthood was restored. Uh, what do the sources say on this? Um, and I, like I said, this isn't a strong suit of mine, so I'm actually gonna recommend an article by Brian Q. Cannon uh, over at uh, BYU Studies um, called Priesthood Restoration Documents. Uh, and uh, Cannon writes a short article here that explains um, both the Aaronic and the Melchizedek priesthood restoration um, and draws on uh, primary sources extensively to do so. Um, he also prints in full, well, excerpts actually in a lot of cases, but he prints 71 different accounts or documents that have relevant information about the uh, origin of the priesthood, the restoration of the priesthood, I should say. Um, the docu the, these 71 documents that he includes in the article are uh, all documents from before 1850, so before Oliver Cowdery died, the last eyewitness. And there are several uh, like letters from Oliver Cowdery where he talks about the, um, the restoration of the priesthood. Uh, we also have you know, Joseph Smith's history and things like that, these other documents that Joseph Smith talked about. There are two eyewitnesses, and we've got some other accounts, some secondhand accounts and things like that that Brian Q. Cannon talks about. Um, in addition to those sources from before 1850, there are actually some really important sources uh, that, uh, that are from much later, uh, that originate uh, a little later. I'm blanking on the name of the person, but in 1880, uh, probably the, the most detailed secondhand accounts were given by someone, uh, Addison, Addison Everett, that was the name. Addison Everett in 1880s uh, talked about uh, and gave some pretty detailed uh, information. Of course, it's really late, so, you know, we got to be somewhat critical in how we deal with that, but uh, Addison Everett's account is printed in full in some of the footnotes uh, of Brian Q. Cannon's article when he's talking about the Melchizedek Priesthood Restoration. So you can get that account along with all those other accounts and, and several other of the later accounts are in the footnotes. 
all of that information from Brian Q. Cannon's article. Um, and so I would recommend going there to learn a little bit more about uh, our documented evidence for the priesthood restoration and uh, what the sources actually say. Um, David Day asked a question related to this one. He says, uh, does it appear that Joseph Smith did not know the identity of his visitors, but later somehow learned or guessed that they were Peter, James, and John? How did Joseph Smith learn their identity? Um, stressing again that priesthood restoration is not my strong suit. Um, and I would recommend, you know, checking out, uh, Brian Cannon's article, he goes through exactly which sources tell us that Peter, James, and John are involved and which ones uh, only mention an angel or angels in plural, or uh, there's one, I don't have the wording off the top of my head, but it says something to the effect of that, that, that Joseph and Oliver, this is a particularly early account, says they received the priesthood, uh, the Melchizedek priesthood from, or the apostleship, they say. They received the apostleship from those who had received it from the Messiah. So clearly referring to the original apostles, but not naming specifically which ones. Um, my intuition, though, would be that they probably identified themselves when they appeared to him. They told him who they were, and so he probably knew who they were from the beginning, but for various reasons, uh, he may not have disclosed that identity right away. He may not have, um, either he wanted to, he felt that was personal or sacred information or whatever the case may be, uh, he just didn't want to tell people about it. That would be my guess. Um, anyway, uh, that is all the questions I've got, uh, I had time to uh, prepare for this week. And so uh, I'm sorry if this, I don't even know how long this went, but uh, I hope it was useful. I hope it was interesting. I hope you feel really ready for general conference now with uh, all that great arcane background on various uh, things in the restoration and especially uh, various questions relating to uh, the first vision. But uh, as always, thank you to everyone who, uh, who had questions and, and who asked and uh, have a good weekend, enjoy conference and uh, stay safe out there.